1 Peter chapter number 3, verses 13 through 17. I got a question for you. Have you ever suffered for doing right? What's that, that saying, no, let no good deed go unpunished, right? It can be frustrating. Just ask David Schaffner III. When he was 16, he was suspended from school for doing the right thing. That's not what it said on a certificate, though. He had uh, been setting up on a Friday night for a hunt that he was going to do the next day. Had a pocket knife in his pocket. Well, after he got done setting up the location for his hunt, he went to the school to watch the high school football team. Saw the sign at the gate that said no kind of weapons, knives, or any of that sort of thing. And so he wanted to obey the policy and went and told the security guard that he had a knife and gave his knife to the security guard. The guard took the knife and the boy to the principal. And instead of saying good job for obeying the rules and being forthright and doing the right thing, uh, Schaffner was asked to leave the game immediately on Friday And then on Monday, he was served with a 10-day out-of-school suspension, all for doing the right thing. I'm sure that that made a great impression on a 16-year-old. The people that Peter is writing to were probably experiencing some of the same thing. They were good citizens, genuinely trying to do good things in the community, being good people, and yet they were suffering for it. What Peter did is he reminded them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ in verses 13 to 17, And these verses are just elaborating verse number 12. If you look at verse number 12 with me, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against all who do evil. Now, he he gives that statement to people who are saying, You know what? It really doesn't feel like it. It seems like every time I turn around and do something good, it's like whack-a-mole, right? And, and, And something's going wrong in this world. And so what Peter did is to explain, although it may not look like it, here's what's going on. In these verses, he's basically saying that a Christian is is one who places his hope in Jesus Christ and nothing else. The depth of your hope in Christ will determine your response to persecution. The depth of your trust in the sovereignty of God will determine your joy and contentment during times of persecution. And so what I want to do today is I want to pull some principles from this passage. How do you deal with life when you're being unjustly rewarded or you're being punished or you're being persecuted for doing the right thing? And I want to pour out, pull out four principles, if that's um, good with you. Number one, what Peter says is that most people find it hard to persecute a good person. Most people do, not everybody. When you do good, you will get responses from the world. But don't be surprised when those responses aren't always positive. Many in the world live lifestyles that, that conflict with, with our lifestyle. They, um, their, their lifestyle is actually of even conflict. They have no peace. Uh, they have sin instead of purity, pride instead of humility, hatred instead of compassion. And some of these people will view believers... As, I, I guess, speed bumps on the superhighway to self-gratification. Does that make sense? If I'm going to have a good time, you believers are in my way. And it doesn't matter how good, moral, or how much good you do in the community when you're in their way, that's going to be a, a problem. 
Others may simply wonder what would motivate somebody to live such a strange lifestyle of holiness and, and hope. I, I think they thought this, that about Tim Tebow and some of the things that were going on with him. But because of this, notice what Peter says in verse number 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, what kind of a question is that? English people, that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The answer is no one. But then the beginning of the very next verse, verse number 14 says, but even if you should suffer. Now, very interesting the way this phrase is is worded. In the original language, we call that an optative verb. And what it means is that it's it's very unlikely that somebody's going going to make you suffer. But if you happen to suffer, it's it's a it's a very remote possibility. In other words, though suffering of all kinds may be widespread, suffering for righteousness is not very likely. Isn't that nice to to know? Now I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I probably made some people suffer for righteousness' sake. I was on my way to church this morning, and I'm driving. Here we go. I know, another driving story, right? It just, I'm telling you, well, anyway. Um, I'm driving Mountain Run Road, and the speed limit's 40, and, of course, I'm duly doing 45 miles per hour. And I'm making good time. All of a sudden, this person pulls out in front of me, and they're not, no kidding, 27 miles per hour. Now, in my old days, I would have persecuted that person for doing righteously and went right up behind him. But honestly, I'm getting a little bit better. I was probably at least uh, 100 feet away from him, maybe more, saying, thank you, Lord, that person's obeying the speed limit. And next time, could you put him behind me? (laughs) But most of the time, you don't get punished for doing bad in traffic you will or for good. But in traffic, you can. Uh, I'm going to try not to be that kind of a person. But the the rhetorical question is, is no one's going to do it to you, but it's a very remote possibility, and sometimes it wouldn't be that way. But in, in I was kind of jesting, but I do want to ask a question. What kind of goodness is Peter talking about when he says, if you should suffer for doing good? Have you ever wondered that? What kind of goodness is that? Well, I, I think that Peter has in mind generally something like this, a good life, a beneficent life, the kind of life that's marked by generosity, unselfishness, and, and, and kindness, and thoughtfulness towards others. Now, be honest. Aren't, wouldn't you rather be around that kind of a person than a selfish pig? Okay. All right. Most of us would. Um, it, it has a way of, of stopping people's hand when they think about how morally good you are. If you if you pay your debts, normally you'll stay financially sound. If you stay sexually pure, you'll usually love or you'll usually avoid disappointment and jealousy. If you behave with humility and peace, most often you'll keep from making enemies. And when you maintain close relationships with other believers, you will always have people to help you through these tough times. So in general, Peter is saying that, look, if you live this kind of life, most of the time you're not going to be persecuted for it. But let's just say that unjust suffering does come your way. And you're being treated unfairly. What is your natural response? There's, there's two responses I'm thinking of. The, the first one is God talk. And the other one is in how, how, you, how you respond to the world around you. Well, I'm going to tell you how I would respond most of the time. 
God, what, why is this happening to me? I, I'm, I'm living, I'm being as good as I possibly can. How come you're allowing this to happen? Did I, did I hit home at all? Am I normal? Right? That's, that's the normal response that people do. That's the natural response. But Peter tells us how we should think about this rather than how we naturally think. And we find that in the next little bit here. And that brings us to principle number two. And he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Principle number two is that suffering for being good, for being righteous, is an indication of God's blessing. Now, that, that's, that's, really, that's really a stretch, isn't it, sometimes for, in our thinking? There's no verb here, by the way. Read, read the verse again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That, that little last bit there, you will be blessed, there's no verb. You know what literally it reads in the original language? Oh, blessed one. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, basically, oh, blessed one. You are the blessed one. You, you get to be blessed with, with suffering. Now, let that sink in. For Peter... The blessing of living rightly is because of Christ and Christ's suffering. And it's nothing less than a sign of God's favor. And it doesn't mean, when we say you're blessed, it doesn't mean you have to be happy about the suffering, does it? it, it, it in fact, our heart can be pierced with many sorrows during the suffering, especially if it's coming from somebody close, like a family member. But the blessed part, what does blessed mean? We always like to think happy, don't we? Happy is the one that this, and happy is the one that. That's not it. The word blessed is a word that means privileged. It means to be favored. It means to be honored. It meant that you are an object of divine favor, of divine grace. In divine goodness, and it's a special dispensation that God has granted in order for you to do a special task. So enjoy the special goodness that God has favored upon you. When's the last time you thought about suffering like that, huh? That's literally what it means. Now, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for almost 30 years, and I'm going to tell you something. I still have not mastered this, and I doubt that anybody here has. Uh, there, there was a, a couple when we were up in town. Their life was suffering from the time we met them until now. There was one health problem after another, losing job and, and this problem and that problem. And, and it, was, it was, when you looked at it, you knew this couple, you realized that this had to be from God for whatever reason that they were suffering in the way that they did. And yet their, their Christian testimony was just stellar through it. And I often thought to myself, Jared, there is no way that I could be that way in suffering. Except that the Bible says that when we do suffer, God will give us grace, doesn't he? And so you can have the grace to do that. Can you look at the Lord when you're suffering for doing good and say, thank you, Lord, for blessing me with the suffering? That's a hard one to do. Well, how does it happen? Well, mark this down. The more conscious Christians are of the blessings promised to God and to His people, the more they will see suffering in a different way. 
in a better way. What do I mean? I mean that if you have your mind and your heart on earthly things, and you're preoccupied with possessions and pleasures and and ease and comfort and popularity, then when suffering comes your way, you're going to be threatened. Right? But if your focus is right, and you understand that God has honored you highly by suffering, and, and will give you a greater weight of glory in the future, then you can count it joy when you fall into various trials. Like James said, you can just count it joy. And it's be, all because of your heart and the focus of your heart. Focus of your heart's eternal. You can count it joy. Focus on your heart is temporal ease, temporal goodness, and all that sort of thing. Then it's going to be hard. Let me, let, me, let me illustrate how this may play out in your life, if, if you don't mind. How would it look for you to suffer for doing good? And I want to ask another question. Is it possible to do good and suffer and know you had to make the decision, if I do this good thing, I know I'm going to suffer. Has that ever happened to you? I have had the privilege over the years of counseling many people, a lot of marital counseling. And on several occasions, the... The, the wife and the husband were in the counseling, and it was obvious that the husband was not fulfilling his responsibility. He may have been verbally abusive, uh, or uh, he may have been an alcoholic. And church member, nobody in church knew it, but, but an alcoholic. And uh, in counseling, he was not changing his behavior by my saying, you need to quit, by the wife saying, this is not right. He was not listening. And so what I would tell the wife is, okay, now at this point, we are now past counseling and we are into church discipline. And so therefore, the de- the deacon board at that church, it would be the elder board here, needs to be alerted to this situation. What was the automatic response from the wife? Maybe, maybe no, but they're they're thinking, okay, if I do this, it's not going to go good for me. Right. So now you're you're asking a wife to do a very difficult thing. The right thing. Is that not the right thing? That's that's the way it goes. If the husband is not going to change, then you need to bring more pain and pressure on him so that he sees that what he's doing is not right. That is the absolute right thing to do. But the wife counting the cost of what that means, some would say yes and some would say no. But realize this, what she has the opportunity to do is to see her husband repent of that behavior and get right with God. And even if he doesn't, even if his reaction is poor, do you know what she receives from the Lord? She receives a blessing, isn't it what the Bible says? Because she is doing the right thing. She's trying to honor and please the Lord. And so this is how this may work out in some very difficult situations. Now, what was our second point? Our second point, second principle is that suffering is an indication of God's blessing. Therefore, there's two actions that we need to pull from the passage that Peter gives us to do. Verse number 14, look at it. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And here's one action. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, that's an Old Testament quotation from Isaiah. And it, and it literally means do not fear their fear. Now, this is what I want you to do. If you have a Bible, hold your finger in 1 Peter 3 and go to Isaiah chapter number 8. 
If you have electronic edition, I'm sorry. Um, turn to Isaiah 8, and we're going to look at verse number 12 from this Old Testament quote because we're going to compare for just a minute, and then we're going to go back to First Peter. I want you to see something. Peter said, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In Isaiah 8, it literally reads, do not fear their fear. Look at what it says. Isaiah 8, 12. Do not call conspiracy, conspiracy, all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, what on, why on earth is Isaiah saying this? He is saying this because he has just told them, that there is coming an invasion of the Assyrian Empire. Heather and I were talking about this yesterday. She's listening to an audiobook on Jonah the prophet and going to the Assyrians. They, hands down, that we can see, were the most cruel empire there was. The, the types of torture, the types of things that they did were just inhumane, horrible, horrible things. And Isaiah said, because you're disobeying the Lord, this is what's coming. They're coming like a flood, and nothing Israel can do will stop it. Well, the natural reaction for anybody, including the prophet Isaiah, is to have fear. And so the Lord looks at Isaiah, the prophet, and he says, Do not walk in the way of the people. How? By fearing what they fear. Then Peter goes on saying, um, So Peter, what he's saying is, Do not fear what the persecuting unbelievers can do to you, why? Because your suffering at their hand is a sign of God's blessing, and it follows that you should not fear what others can do to you. Now turn back, because we're going to go back to Isaiah, but go back to First Peter chapter 3, verse number 14 and 15. And I want you to see the first part of verse number 15, because this continues a quote. Verse number 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, where is he pulling this from? Go back to Isaiah chapter number 8, verse number 13 this time. Isaiah eight thirteen, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now in First Peter, he said, honor Christ. Isaiah the prophet said, honor the Lord. So Lord here and Christ in First Peter are the exact same person of the Trinity, aren't they? They're referring to the same person. And he says, honor the Lord as holy. What does he mean? He means basically place your hope in the Lord. Place your hope in Jesus Christ. God tells Isaiah, don't fear the Assyrians like everyone else in Israel. Rather, honor God, fear God. The word fear meaning respect. By doing this, you're affirming that the one and only person I really have to fear is the Lord and I, I dread, I can dread him rather than human beings. It does not bother me what men may do to me. Now go back to First Peter chapter number three, verse number fifteen, where Peter says, "In your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy." The heart. And this is what I want to say about the heart. The heart is the origin of all of our human behavior. It's it's the origin of our goals our desires, our, our dreams. It's the seat of all these things. It, to set apart Christ in your heart as holy means that you're making Christ the object of your desire. If what is in the heart comes out in a way that you act, 
then people are going to notice. So in other words, this. If I am honoring Christ, if I treasure Him more than I treasure riches, if I treasure Him more than I treasure comfort, if I treasure Him more than I treasure ease, then when persecution comes, I'm honoring Him and it's going to come out. It's not going to be, woe is me. It's not going to be complaining. I have such a hard life. It's going to be, Praise the Lord, life is tough, but Christ is good, and I'm looking forward to what He rewards me with. You see? Principle number three, what do we do when we're handling suffering? Be ready to gently and respectfully explain your hope to anyone who asks. Second half of verse number 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, when we're suffering for doing good, we're not to withdraw from society. We're not to build a colony in a strange land. Um, we, we need to be out among people so that we can explain the hope. When you fear Jesus Christ and no one else, you automatically place your hope in Him. But what is the hope that we're talking about here? The hope is the Christian faith altogether. It's the whole package. That's what Peter's talking about. When he says hope, by the way, Peter uses hope a lot. Um, all the way through chapter 3, Peter mentions hope. And he, he's when he speaks of hope, he's talking about the eternal riches that we have, the inheritance that we have, the glory that we're going to have, and all those sort of things. That's the hope that we're talking about. We've been born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter just loves that word hope. Now, how do we explain that hope to people? In practical terms, what does this look like? I have in my hands, this is from my files from 2013. It's an op-ed piece from the Huffington Post. Be honest with you, it's from the gay voices section of the Huffington Post. And it's called this. It's called My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan, Kathy, and Chick-fil-A. I'm going to do some extended reading of sections here to show you what this looks like in real life. And this is not to glorify a person. This is to show you in one of some of the most extreme situations what this looks like. This is how the article begins. I spent New Year's Eve at the red-blooded All-American epicenter of college football at the Chick-fil-A Bowl next to Dan Cathy as his personal guest. It was among the most unexpected moments of my life. You might ask why. Yes, after months of personal phone calls, text messages, and in-person meetings, I'm coming out in a new way as a friend of Chick-fil-A's president and chief operating officer, Dan Cathy. And I'm nervous about it. If you've come to know him in Chick-fil-A, and I realize this, this person is, is a gay person, activist. He says, um, I've, come out, I've come to know him in Chick-fil-A in a way that I never thought possible when I first started hearing from LGBT students and their concerns over the chicken chain's giving practices. For many, this news of friendship may be shocking. After all, I am an out 40-year-old gay man and a lifelong activist for equality. I am also a founder and executive director of Campus Pride, 
the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and an ally college students. Just seven months ago, our organization advanced a national campaign against Chick-fil-A for the millions of dollars it donated to anti-LGBT organizations and divisive political groups that work each day to harm hardworking LGBT young people, adults, and their families. I spent quite a bit of time being angry at and deeply distrustful of Dan, Kathy, and Chick-fil-A. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now I'm going to kind of skip through some sections. Why was I now next to him at one of the most popular football showdowns? He asked that question. And then he goes on to explain a few things, and he says this. He said, I had the background and history on him, so I thought, in my own preconceived notions about who he was, I knew this character. No way did he know me. That was my view, but it was flawed. Did you catch that? People have a flawed view of, of who we are. And he talks about all the protesting he does. And he says this, on August 10th, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise phone call from Dan Cathy. He had gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind, right? Turn me to his lawyers, right? The first call lasted over an hour, and the private conversation led to more calls the next week and a week after. Dan Cathy uh, knew how to text, and he would even reach out to me as new questions came to his mind. This is not going to be a typical turn of events. And he talks a little bit more about some things, and he says this. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for Campus Pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and the real-life accounts from youth about the negative impact that Chick-fil-A was having on the campus climate and the safety at colleges altogether. He was concerned about an incident last fall where a fraternity was tabling next to the Chick-fil-A restaurant on campus. Whenever an out gay student on campus would walk past the table, they would chant, we love Chick-fil-A, and then shout anti-gay slurs at the students. Dan sought first to understand and not to be understood. He confessed that he had been naive to the issues at hand and the unintended impact of his company's actions goes on to talk about some more things, and he says this. Through all this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. He and I were committed to better understand one another. Realize the perspective that's being written here. You realize the opposite Christian perspective of what's going on. Then he says this. Throughout our conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than being a quote-unquote Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. You know how that works? Okay. Then he says, a couple paragraphs later, in many ways, 
getting to know Dan better reminded me of my relationship with my uncle, who was a pastor at a Pentecostal church. When I came out as an openly gay person in college, I was aware that his religious views were not supportive of homosexuality, but my personal relationship with my uncle reassured me of his love for, for me. My uncle would never want to see any harm come to me or Tommy. His beliefs prevented him from fully reconciling what he understood as the immorality of homosexuality and the morality of loving and supporting me and my life. And those are two different issues that we're talking about here. There's a reverence for life and there's a hatred for the sin, right? That's what he's he's describing Christian values very well. Um, Then let let me finish up real quick. As Dan and I grew through mutual dialogue and respect, he invited me to be his personal guest on New Year's Eve at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. And this is what's important. This was an event that Campus Pride and others had planned to protest. Had I been played? Had I been seduced into his billionaire's life? No. It was Dan who had a great risk in inviting me. He stood to face the ire of his conservative base and he, he was the one who faced a potential boycott by the conservatives by being seen or photographed with an LGBT activist. He could, have portrayed it, he could have been portrayed as caving to the gay agenda by welcoming me. Instead, and this is how I'm going to finish, instead he stood next to me most of the night putting respect ahead of fear. And there he was on the sidelines with this person. It, now, I'm not saying that Dan Cathy's a perfect person or anything like that. But is this probably the way the Bible would want us to respond to this kind of a person? You see, when we are good and we try to please Christ, we can stand firm on doctrinal beliefs and still be a kind and good testimony for those who do not believe the same way we do. That's what it looks like when people start asking the hope this, this young man knew a lot about what Dan Cathy believed, didn't he? he? He almost talked like he understood Christian doctrine completely. And it's because of that, that hope, how he was able to explain his hope in Jesus Christ. Let me close with a fourth principle. Fourth principle, be zealous for good and any suffering will be God's will. What do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's break down the next two verses very quickly. Verse number 16, having a good conscience so that you, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That, that phrase, having a good conscience, it speaks to two issues. Number one, you have a clear conscience before the Lord. And second, your testimony is conducted in an appropriate manner. So you have the vertical and the horizontal dimension working at the same time. It should... Uh, if an offense is taken, it should be over the content of the gospel message, not because the message was offered in a manner that invalidates God's love for people. You should never allow your presentation to be the obstacle. It should always be the message. Now look at verse number 17. For it is better to, for su- to suffer for doing good than if God... Let me back up. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Now, there's two options mentioned here. You get a better perspective on your opinion. Option number one is to suffer for what's doing right. If God wills it. 
And if God wills your suffering for doing right, then you're blessed in that suffering and eternally rewarded. Option number two is that you can suffer for doing wrong. Take your choice because that's also going to be God's will that you suffer for doing wrong. The bottom line is God wills both. He wills that if you do right um, and you suffer in order that you be strengthened, that he might be glorified. And he wills that if you do wrong, you suffer because that's his chastening. Take your choice. You get a perspective on opinions. uh, So we know how to face a hostile world, don't we? So let me leave you with two things from this passage. You ready? Number one. Make sure that you have your hope in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he provides and nothing else. And number two, if you are suffering for doing the right thing or have suffered for doing the right thing, rejoice because that's God's will and you will be richly blessed for it. Lord, we thank you for the countercultural message that we find in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the, the, um, the goodness that you display on a, on a daily basis to us. We thank you that you encourage us when, when we're suffering with the eternal righteousness. And so, more than anything else, Lord, I pray that we will be people who will um, understand that we are blessed when we suffer, that we'll honor and glorify you through difficult things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.